0: The following sermon is by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 1, right here at the beginning, and this is what we're going to be focusing on this morning, so turn to Psalm 1, and let's read this beautiful psalm together. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When I think about the passages of Scripture that have had the greatest impact on my life, Psalm 1 is right up there at the top. I first met this passage when I was in high school, I was in Charlotte. And I went to this seminar, and at the seminar, the speaker was talking about Psalm 1. And he explained that delighting in God's law involves more than just, you know, reading it or, or hearing it on Sunday. It includes meditate, meditating on it throughout the day. And he said that the most effective way to do that was to memorize Scripture. And then he pointed out, as we saw in verse 3, that everything this person does prospers, which caught my attention. But he wasn't preaching a prosperity gospel. He was showing that Psalm 1 outlined a basic biblical principle that filling our minds with God's Word leads to godly thinking and godly decisions, which results in a faithful, blessed life. So I began memorizing Scripture. The first passage that I memorized was Psalm 1. And as I did so, I began to fall in love with God's Word. And that's really the core message of Psalm 1, that the people of God are called to be lovers of His Word. In fact, these six verses are really a celebration of those who find their delight in the Scriptures. And so my purpose this morning, as we walk through Psalm 1, verse by verse, is that you will also fall in love with this passage and want more than ever to be that person that it describes, someone who delights in the scriptures and who is uniquely marked by God's favor. So let's dig in. Psalm one is a study of contrasts, contrasts between two very different types of people. It uses several words, but it's it's the godly and the unrighteous. And throughout the Psalm, David, Draws these portraits. He, He uses these powerful metaphors to contrast and to compare these two groups of people. In fact, we can divide the psalm into three parts as he compares the godly and the unrighteous. There's verses one and two where he compares the type of company that these two groups keep. There's verses three and four where he compares how they fare in terms, how they fare in life in terms of fruitfulness and prosperity. And then verses 5 and 6, where he compares how they fare in the day of judgment. So let's jump into this first part. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see this contrast between the type of company that the godly and the unrighteous keep. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but is delight is in the law of the Lord. This is a great example of, of what we call Hebrew parallelism that we find in Hebrew poetry. And as you, as you probably know, the, the idea, and this, it's a poetic device, but the idea is that you say the same thing over again and again, sometimes two. In this case, he's saying the same thing three times. But each time, you, he expresses it slightly different. And so it gives us this, this poetic effect but it also, with each phrase, it gets richer and more powerful, and it helps us to understand it better. So in verse 1, David is essentially saying this same thing. Do not, do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Do not stand in the way of sinners. Do not sit in the seat of scoffers. But the overarching idea is the same. He's saying, don't make your primary company or the primary influence in your life, the ungodly. Do not make your primary company the ungodly. Now, I like these verbs, walk, sit, stand. They're, they're action words. They're they're descriptive. And I believe David chose these words because they're, they're a description of, of communal life in an ancient city like Jerusalem, a place where, where life was lived out there on the street. Now, I I know here in Raleigh, we don't spend a lot of time standing, walking, or sitting on the street, unless you've been involved in some of the protests, but other parts of the world are different. Where we lived in Kosovo, it was very different. We were in this little town. Some of y'all have been there, Stime, and 13,000 people, and we were right on the main drag, and we lived on top of the bakery, so we would wake to the smell of fresh bread every morning, and But as we walked out our door, the street came alive. People were flowing into the bakery and out trying to get their bread. Albanians eat a lot of bread. And you'd see Luan there on the sidewalk. He was starting to crank up his rotisserie chicken for the day. He had to cook it all day. And then there were people walking up and down. There were the men. They were sitting in the cafes already fervently talking about the politics of the day. Uh, A couple women standing, catching up some of Ben's friends standing on the quarter laughing at people and making fun of them and trying to get attention of the girls. Life was lived. It was out there, right there on the street, people sitting, standing, walking. It was alive. And I believe David is also picturing the city of Jerusalem alive (laughs) with life and action and its narrow streets, especially you think of Jerusalem on the on the Sabbath and on the days of the feast as people flocked to Jerusalem and they streamed into the Temple Mount. Another busy part of the town of Jerusalem would have been all of the city gates because this is where people set up their markets that the people coming from the city would come out to and the people coming from the villages would come to to buy and sell. And I think this was the context he had in in mind. You know, when he was writing this, not to sit in the seat of scoffers, you remember the custom was at the at the city gate, the main city gate in Jerusalem, was for the for the elders to sit and, and to judge the legal affairs, to hear the complaints and the problems, and to judge the legal affairs of the people. And you might remember how Absalom used this very tradition to, to foment his rebellion. 2 Samuel 15 describes him getting up every morning. And going to the city gate, and he would sit there and he would hear people's complaints, and then he would scoff at the supposed indifference of King David to all of their problems. Scoffing, sitting at the city gates. When I think of walking in the council of the wicked, my thoughts go to Proverbs 5, as the writer of the Proverbs counsels his son not to go to certain parts of that city, not to even walk past the door of the prostitute. And then standing in the way of sinners reminds me of the religious leaders in Jesus' time, standing on the street corners, praying in order to be seen by people. See, in Jerusalem, the places that you walked and stood and sat, they defined who you were because they told people about the company that you kept. And it was the same way in Shtimei. The, the, the cafe you chose to sit in, the people that you stood and walked with to find the company that you were keeping. So, you know, if David lived here today, he, he might have chosen some different verbs, maybe some different metaphors. He might have said, you know, like driving or surfing the Internet or sitting in front of the television. But the principle here is the same. Psalm 1, verse 1, is a challenge for us to, to filter the influences in our lives, to step back and evaluate who we're listening to and the effect of the people around us. You know, we're called to be salt and light in this world, so we're called to spend time with people, but we need to be aware of the influences they're having on us. You know, a lot of times we just think, you know, we can, we can do what we want and we're oblivious to the people and the influences around us, but it's not true. 1 Corinthians 15:33 is a very powerful verse. It says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. It may be slow. It may not happen overnight, but it takes place. It's like the frog in the kettle. You, you, you don't even notice it's happening so slowly, you don't even notice the change. So that would be my first, you know, just challenge to you this morning. Let's look at Psalm, from Psalm 1, verse 1. Let's take a step back. When's the last time you just took some time to evaluate the settings that you put yourself in during a day, the people around you, and, you know, your work environment, maybe your school environment as we start back, your social circles, the social media that you're involved with, the music that you listen to, your entertainment choices, how are they affecting your daily walk with the Lord? How are they affecting your personal holiness and your purity? We may need to make some changes, and that's the first message of Psalm 1. But then in verse 2, David kind of switches, and he gives us another way to combat the negative influences around us, and that's by overwhelming them with a positive influence. The answer is to saturate our minds with God's Word. It says the godly person delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. So let's think about that for a few minutes. What does it really mean to delight in the law of the Lord and to meditate on it day and night? What does that mean? Well, we see that there's, there's two particular elements in those two phrases. One is about the affections, Right? It says we delight in something. It's our heart. We're delighting in the law of the Lord. And the other is about actions, meditating day and night. That's the drudgery. That's the the living out what we do in, in a day. So we have our affections here, and we have our actions, two A words, or we could use two D words. We could say this is about delighting and then the discipline to carry out our meditation delighting in God's Word, and the discipline of daily meditation. Those are the elements, and and they have to be combined. Because a person who delights in God's Word, he he carves out time in his busy schedule to read it, and then to pray over it. And then he, he goes about his day putting it into practice, and then ultimately experiences the blessings and the promises that are contained in its pages. But it starts with saturating our minds with God's word. You, know, you remember Grant challenged us about this very thing a few weeks ago. And I like the way he visualized it for us. Grant said, we need to find ways to get more of this in here. And that's what we need to do. And we heard about Grace Anna, how she likes to listen to the scriptures on audio during the day. My wife, Ren, has a practice of reading through the Bible in a year. She's done it so many times that I've lost count. I'm on the other end. I like to, to grab a few verses and, and just really focus on them and me- perhaps memorize them and chew on them for a few days. What's your strategy? Do you have, do you have a way that you regularly go about meditating on God's Word during the day? A good strategy will include these two elements of, of delight and discipline. We all know it takes discipline. We, we all struggle with discipline. I, I, I do. I know you probably do too because in the busy hustle of life, it gets so easy for it to get squeezed out if we don't have discipline. So if you're struggling with discipline this morning, I'm going to give you three Suggestions. If you're struggling with that discipline to, to keep your time in God's Word or to start that time in God's Word, three suggestions. Maybe you're aware of these. But the first one is to set some specific goals about what you're going to read and then have a very specific time and a specific place that's the same every day. Set up a, a pattern and a discipline that's a routine that has a, a reading plan, a place and a time second suggestion is to use a reading plan to give yourself some goals and some structure as you spend time in god's word there's a lot of great reading plans out there you you, the women of capital they're starting a challenge you might have seen this the women of capital are starting a challenge in september to read through the whole bible in nine months that's a great opportunity that's a great reading plan there's also some good plans available in, in some of the Bible apps like the U version and the Olive Tree Bible app. It's it's fascinating. We used the U version over in Albania and Kosovo so effectively. You see, we were in a Muslim culture, and as we were working with high school students, we would want to give them a Bible, and often we would give them a Bible, and they would return it to us and said, My parents I can't can't have a Bible in our home. But they all had phones. And they would put the Bible on their phone in Albanian. And with the U-version, we figured out that we could start a reading plan together. I could be reading in English if I want. They could be reading in Albanian. And it had a forum that we could keep track of how everybody was doing. And we could ask questions and we could interact as we went through the scriptures together. It was was a very powerful tool. So have a reading plan. Number three, if you're struggling with discipline, one of the most helpful things is just to, to have a partner, to have some sort of accountability, somebody to encourage you. Maybe you're doing the reading plan together, accountability. So that's discipline. But the other factor in this equation is delight, and that's a little more elusive. We can't just fabricate or talk ourselves into delight. It's it's a it's a matter of the heart. Regardless of how much discipline you have, without delight, that it's only going to last so long. So where do we go for? Where do we go to get more delight in God's word? Well, we go to the source, which is the Father. The first thing to do is it's it's to pray. If it's something. That you want to see happen in your life, pray, ask God to increase your affections for His Word. The other thing I'd encourage you to do is to spend time with other people who have a heart for His Word because it's contagious. So we see in verses one and two that the ungodly find their counsel in in the world, but that the godly saturate their minds with God's word. So let's move on to part two, in verses three and four. We're going to see how these two groups fare in life. Verse three says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So we got two more metaphors. David's draw on these pictures for us. And here we encounter the godly and the ungodly in terms of the kind of fruit that they produce. And the first picture is this vibrant tree. We've heard it so often. You've seen this. We, scripture talks about how the tree is a symbol of a vibrant life of a believer. But there's also this picture of, of a farm working in a wheat field where shaft is blowing in the wind. And you're probably familiar with how this works in a traditional, you know, primitive farming society. There's a threshing floor. And once the wheat has been cut, it's brought to the threshing floor, and it's separated from the, the wheat, and in the, in the <coughs> stalks are pounded, and it's separated. And then the farmer throws everything up in the air on a windy day or in a windy place where they would place these threshing floors and the wind would blow away the shaft, leaving the precious kernels behind. Ben and I were driving across Kansas just last month and we experienced this same phenomenon played out in the modern-day context. We saw these huge machines, these these combines, kind of mega-tractors 40 feet wide, going down the rows of wheat in Kansas. These are incredible machines. It's it's, it's a machine that's as wide as a four-lane interstate, and it's cutting, it's doing all three of the tasks of the harvest in one go, the threshing, the winning, winnowing, and the reaping. And as it goes through the wheat field, it pulls up the grain. And then It separates it, and the kernels are set up to send up this little conveyor belt into the top of the tank where they store the kernels. And then once that's separated, this big machine grabs all the shaft, and it starts chopping it up. And then it has these powerful fans that blow it out the back of the combine. And then it just keeps going. Well, if you're driving along the interstate and you see one of these like we did, what you see is you see this little teeny tractor and then you see this huge, swirling cloud of shaft going way up. And you can see it for miles behind each tractor. Most of what you see is the cloud of shaft that's left behind. But there's nothing in it. It's, it's the leftover. It's the refuse. And according to verse 4, that's the result of an ungodly life. Lots of activity, maybe lots to see, but the result is just chaff. No grain, no fruit in it, no legacy, just debris blowing about in the wind. It's a picture of an empty, wasted life. And David contrasts that in verse 3 with this vibrant, healthy tree, with its roots Reaching down into the bed of the river, so that it can give its strength and stand up to that same wind that 's blowing the shaft, and it says of this healthy tree that it yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither this is a This is a powerful simile, but it 's used in a lot of different places in the scripture. Jeremiah talks about this uses the same metaphor, and he says in jeremiah seventeen eight that those whose confidence in the Lord is like a tree planted by the waters that send out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, and it never fails to produce fruit. Psalm 92 also talks about the thriving tree. In verse 12, it says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree, They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Don't you love verse 14? They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. If you're a part of the more mature crowd here at Capitol, that should be a word of encouragement. This is, this, is, this is your verse here. You may have reached retirement, but it's not time to check out. Well, you're still needed. You're so needed in the body of Christ. And God will give you fruit even in your old age. We have some great examples of that here in our body at Capitol. So going back to Psalm 1-3, the phrase that's used to describe this, this fruitful tree is that it yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not weather. So what does it mean to yield its fruit in its season? Does that mean that a healthy thriving believer is going to produce a bumper crop of, of new believers and disciples every year? Season after season? Well, I don't think so. If you've Spent time in ministry, you know that the seasons of sowing and reaping, well, they rarely coincide with my plans or with my calendar year. Um, there's something that God controls. In missions, sometimes there are years of sowing before there's ever any harvest. We served in Albania and Kosovo for 25 years, and we experienced some incredible seasons of Harvest. No, it was so exciting. There was a time when over a dozen people became believers in just a short amount of time. And there was a time when we were raising up elders and just saw people step up into leadership and take over the, the running of that local church. And just, there were just times where we were just so excited at what God was doing in terms of the harvest. But there were also more modest Harvests, and there were and there were lean years and there were seasons when it seemed like for more than a year or years we were just trying to dig up the hard ground and, and scatter some seeds where they would take root. Those were the seasons God gave us. I would have liked for more bumper crop years But he gave us what he gave us, and we are so thankful for that. It's God's job to set the seasons in our lives and in our ministries. We've seen that here at Capitol. Same type of different seasons of growth and different seasons of fruitfulness. What is our job? Our job is what Paul told Timothy, to preach the word in season and out of season keep our hand on the plow so that when the season of our harvest does come that we're ready we're at work and we're ready to bring in god's harvest this is this tree described in psalm 1 verse 3 it bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and that brings us to this small little phrase at the end of verse 3 that i think we're all going to be interested in it says in all that he does he prospers And all that he does, he prospers. That got my attention as a high school student, and it's a pretty strong statement. I mean, it sounds like the golden ticket. I'm interested in this. So what does it mean to prosper in everything that you do? Well, I think the best way to understand this phrase is to look at a real-life example. In fact, there's only one person in the Bible that is described with the same Words from Psalm One, almost the same phrase: that everything he did prospered. Do you know who that is? I, I asked my wife Ren this week. I mean, she should know. She reads the Bible every year, and she went silent for at least fifteen seconds. Nothing. She searched all of her, you know, memory. I thought I had her stumped, but then she said. Joseph, Joseph. And in fact, Scripture says twice of Joseph that he was prosperous in everything that he did. So let's look at Joseph and and turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. We need to look at what happened and why Joseph would be described this way so we can get a better idea of what it means to live a life where everything you do prospers. Genesis 39, we're going to th- look at both of these instances where it says that everything he did prospers. And so the first one is in verses 1 to 6, we're going to read, and then we're going to flip down to verse 20. So Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. And he lived in the house of this Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that, oh, here it is, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left Joseph in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. That's the first instance. Skipping down to verse 20, same chapter, the second time. Joseph's master, this is Potiphar, took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison ward. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because, and here's our phrase, the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So there it is. It's in verse 3. It's in verse 23. You find the same phrase. The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. That word success is actually the exact same hebrew word that we find in psalm 1 verse 3 the same word that's translated prosper in psalm 1:3, is the success here in joseph's life and the meaning in both of these instances is very clear whatever joseph put his hand to went well and which is why he's noticed by potiphar and by the warden and he's eventually put in charge and things continue to go well everything he did was successful. So how do we, what do we make of Joseph's prosperity? Well, before we draw our conclusions, I think we need to look at the wider context. Where is Joseph? In the first passage, Joseph is a slave. He's a slave in Potiphar's house. In the second instance, Where this phrase is used of him, he's in a prisoner. He's a prisoner in a dungeon. Isn't it fascinating? The two times in Joseph's life where he is described as prospering in everything he did were likely the two most difficult periods in his whole life. These were not the early years in his father's house with the coat and being the favorite child. These were not the final years when he was the second ruler over all Egypt. These were the hard years. And this wasn't an overnight stay. His time in, as a slave and as a in the dungeon were, lasted about 10 years. Most people would have grown bitter and disillusioned as they wasted away in a dungeon far from their home, far from the people that they loved. But God, we've read it, God was with Joseph. He was kind to Joseph. He was faithful to Joseph during that hard time of suffering. And Joseph's faith held firm. And the result is that Joseph prospered in everything he did. But I believe the greatest prospering in Joseph's life during those 10 years was a prospering that was taking place in his spirit as he learned to trust in God during a difficult time, during suffering, during a time when his, his dreams were unfulfilled. You remember they, Joseph at 17, where it's given a direct dream from God about his life and how God was going to bless it. And during these 10 years, it's, he's, nothing makes sense. But Joseph is prospering spiritually through the suffering, and he's learning to trust in God and i think that this is the time that god molded him into a great man this is the time that god taught him how to be a great leader who would eventually save his family and save the whole world during a severe famine that's what it means to prosper in everything you do as we turn return to psalm 3 psalm 1 verse 3 we find that the man who delights in god's word also, also prospers in all that he does and indeed god will cause us to prosper as we delight in his word but it's but let's not be surprised if like joseph this prosperity comes with trials and suffering along the way as god works out his greater purpose which is the prospering of our souls so we've seen we've covered the first two parts we've seen how the godly and the wicked are very different in the company that they keep, the influences. And they're very different in the fruitfulness and the prosperity of their lives. So let's look at this final section where we find a comparison about how they fare in judgment. Let's read verse 5 again. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. So again, let's notice the the Hebrew parallelism parallelism there in verse 5. He uses wicked and sinners. These are synonyms describing the same group of people. Both of these phrases are conveying the idea that the fate of the wicked is dismal. They're going to be judged, and they're not going to to fare well in the judgment. They're going to be separated from God's people. And in verse 6, it goes on to add that they're going to perish, which talks about their final destruction. So it's clear that we're talking about the final judgment here. And then, in contrast, it says of the godly in these verses, verse 5, that they will be gathered into a congregation of the righteous. And it implies that they will also stand in the judgment. And in verse 6, this, this perishing of the wicked is contrasted with the righteous because it says God knows the way of the righteous. So he's telling of an intimacy that God has with the believer and about his enduring care. That's how these two groups fare in judgment. And one thing that stands out to me is that there's only two stated outcomes. I typically react to to those statements that start with there's two type of people in, these, in the world. And the, re, the joke goes on. But when it comes to our eternal destiny, the Bible is very clear that on the day of judgment, we will be divided in ex, into exactly two groups, one bound for heaven and the other for hell. Verse, verses 5 and 6 describe only two outcomes, those who stand in the final judgment and those who perish. In Matthew 25, Jesus says the same thing. He says, he will separate the sheep and the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Verse 34 in Matthew 25, you don't have to turn there. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then in verse 41, then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So, the Bible is not nuanced when it, coming, when it comes to describing the options for our final destiny. It's right or left. It's sheep or goats. It's in the congregation of the righteous or with the perishing. So, if you're here this morning, And you're not sure which group you're in, that's the most important thing that you could get settled today. Where are you going to spend your eternity? We've already seen in Psalm one that it in Psalm one it all depends on where you go to find truth. Were they listening to the counsel of the wicked? Or did they look for truth in the law of the Lord? And these same scriptures tell us how we can know with certainty where we're going to spend our eternity. John 3.16 just lays it out so clearly. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And there's our two groups again, the perishing and those with eternal life. If you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you to do that today come speak with me or one of the elders after the service and and take that very important step in your life. Well, if you're here this morning, and I know many of you are, you're already a lover of God's Word. I hope you've been encouraged by Psalm 1. It's, It's a celebration of your life. It's a celebration of both your devotion to God and His faithfulness in your life. You've seen it as He's made you fruitful as he's prospered your soul. And it's also a preview that the best is yet to come, eternal life in the congregation of the righteous. But if you're a follower of Christ, and as we've been going through these verses, you've, you've found yourself struggling with some of these things, perhaps allowing ungodly fluences, too much sway in your life, or if you're having a hard time with the Ds of of discipline and delighting in God's Word, then I hope our time in Psalm 1 has stirred up your heart and reminded you of just how precious this Word is and how blessed is the life that sinks its roots deeply into the Scriptures. If you don't have a reading plan in place, I just encourage you to start by coming back to psalm 1. Spend some time in psalm 1 this week. It's only 6 verses. Memorize it. Let it sink deep into your soul and rekindle rekindle that love that you have for this book. Let me close with this. One of my favorite movies is The Rookie. Baseball fans, this is about an older guy who's trying to become a major league baseball pitcher. But everyone thinks he's just too old. One of the best scenes is when he's still in the minor leagues. And he's just worn out. The minor leagues, you just go from town to town playing, and it's this traveling circus. And he's just tired of it all. He's about to throw in the towel. He's sick of it. He wants to go home to his wife. And then that evening, he goes for a walk. And he stumbles onto this little league baseball game. And as he's watching these kids play baseball, something steers in his heart. And he realizes just how much he loves the game. And that's the turning point of the story. The next day, he shows up for practice and he turns to his teammate and he says, You know what we get to do today, Brooks? We get to play baseball. And I hope that you will wake up tomorrow morning and that you'll say, You know what I get to do today? I get to read the very words of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful psalm, this powerful word that you gave to us through your servant David. Thank you for all that it teaches us about your word and delighting in it. Thank you for your example of Joseph and your faithfulness to him and his faithfulness to you. And Father, our prayer this morning is very simple. Make us lovers of your word. Increase our affections. Help us with the discipline. Oh, Father, make us lovers of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.